Yo, y'all wanted more of Andre Picard? We are delivering. We're talking cannabis. We're talking pharmacare. We're talking medical assistance and dying. We're talking privatization of healthcare. Episode 14 with Andre Picard. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We are super excited about this episode with Andre Picard. We cover a lot. We cover some of the questions that we saw on social media, on Twitter, and on Facebook. But what I want you guys to really take away from this episode is how a lack of clear objectives and goals within our healthcare system really can impair care and impair resource utilization. I think that was a huge eye-opening point that Andre and I get to talk about here in this episode, amongst the other things, but it's a real eye-opener. Every other area within business, healthcare, your own health, your career goals, you all of us have clear goals and objectives, but what are our goals in healthcare? Is it to reduce infant mortality? Is it to improve on mental health services? What are our objectives? These are the real questions we should be asking ourselves. Okay, before getting into the show, I want to tell you about our sponsors, betterhelp.com. As I said, I love these guys. They are online counseling service that provides accessible, affordable, and convenient counseling services that is readily available via video chat, via telephone, via text messaging, and they cater to your needs, whether it's teen counseling, whether it's marriage counseling, whether it's healthcare providers addressing compassion fatigue. They're fantastic. So if you guys are looking to sign up, use promo code solving healthcare and you'll get a 10% discount on their services. Our other sponsor today is the podcast critical levels. This is hosted by my boy, Zach Cantor. And this show is awesome. It's about paramedicine and the issues around paramedicine, but they also dive into issues that involve us all specifically He had a great episode with Dr. Zemek about childhood concussions, which as a a father of three boys that are involved in hockey, I was completely engaged in, and it was a great conversation. This guy's going to be a star. So if you guys are game, listen to him on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, anywhere you could listen to podcasts, and uh, it's a guaranteed gamer, man. Good job, Zach. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to the Department of Medicine at the Ottawa Hospital. These guys have supported this show tremendously. I want to give a shout out to Abilash, Sandra, and Dee Tracy, you guys are amazing. They've assisted with marketing, an updated website on the Department of Medicine page. I'll leave links to that on the show notes. It is proper. But yeah, love you guys for all the support and uh, appreciate it. All right, let's dive into it. Andre Picard, the author of Matters of Life and Death, and you heard him on episode 13. 
amazing journalist, 40 years of experience, and he really delivers on this episode. We, we talk about it all, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. So we're just going to dive into it. Enjoy episode 14. So I touched a bit on universal healthcare and, and how I'm not sure in Canada we can truly say that we have universal healthcare. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts in terms of privatization. You know, th- this is coming up a lot in terms of ways of making healthcare more sustainable, dealing with wait times and so forth. What are your thoughts in terms of privatization? Well, let me start with the universality part of the puzzle. So we have in Canada, we have this notion that we have a universal system, but we have the least universal universal healthcare system in the world. So I think once you put it in those terms, you go, oh, hold on, is that true? The least. And it is, because <laughs> we cover hospitals and we cover physicians 100%, but we cover very little of everything else. We cover about 45% of drugs publicly, about 30% of home care, uh, 30, 35% of long-term care, 6% of dental care. We're all over the map and it's irrational. So we don't have a universal healthcare system. So that's the first part of the, the puzzle. I always uh, I like to use the analogy of a, a basket. So we have this Medicare basket of services. Right now we have a basket that's very narrow and very deep. It's hospitals mm. and physicians. We pay for all of it, even though some of it probably shouldn't be paid for. And then the other stuff, we don't cover near enough. So I think we need to make this basket a lot wider and a bit shallower. So we cover a lot more, but we give some people some responsibility for the rest. So that brings us to the the second part of the privatization uh, talk. And I think a lot of the talk about privatization in Canada, the way to shut down any discussion about healthcare is to say, oh, you're going to privatize, we're going to be like the US. Mm -hmm. I I think that's nonsense. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think the, the, the reality is every no health system can cover 100% of everything for everyone all the time. So we're going to have some private health care. So we have to realize that from the outset. So the question is not, will we have private health care? The question is, where do we have it? How do we regulate it? And how do we make sure that everyone gets the essential care that they need at an affordable price? So that's, mm-hmm. we have to have these philosophical parameters and then how we deliver the care, to me, it doesn't really matter. I don't care if it's delivered by privately, publicly, a mixture. What matters is that people get the care and that it's accessible and that it's affordable. So that, that's my philosophy. I get some grief for that. But I think that's how we have to have the discussion about privatization. It's not black and white. It's about how do we regulate it? How do we ensure that it's delivered fairly and comprehensively, et cetera? So I think in Canada, the problem we have is we have a badly administered public health care and badly regulated private health care. So we kind of have the worst of both worlds. A lot of European countries have a lot of private health care, but it's very strictly regulated. It's not a free-for-all the way it is here. So there's different ways to, to have, get that balanced right. And again, yeah. I'm ranting, but uh, you caught me on my pet topic. No, no I, that's part of my game. It's interesting because actually I've never heard that frame that way is that we're the how'd you put it in terms of universal healthcare we're the the, the least universal the universal least, healthcare yeah system. i like that and i mean because it, it's often people forget that they're like oh we don't have any private health care in canada but you know if i go see a physiotherapist i'm paying out of pocket and it's true it's like where do we want to put our private resources i mean some of the 
topics that come up or worries I hear people mention is like resource drain where like some of the best surgeons or physicians or whatever allied health professionals would just strictly go into the private uh, sector. But it's kind of like you mentioned, if you regular, if you're like anything that you're going to do, that's semi new or complicated, it will take some nuance. And so, yeah, you know, maybe you need to restrict how much time physicians could spend in the private sector. Maybe that's a solution, but certainly to think that we can't have any element of private healthcare in 2020 or, or beyond, I think is a bit ignorant at this point. Well, and you're right. It's about setting parameters. So if you look at a country like France, uh, many doctors practice in the public system and the private system, but there's strict regulation. So if you want to work in the private, for every hour you give to the private system, you have to give an hour to the public system. So that's, that's a way of getting some balance there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, uh, you know, it's not an either or. Uh, in Canada, you can opt in m- many provinces, not all, but in many provinces, you can opt out of the public system and then you can charge whatever you want. There's no limit. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure that's a good system. Now, very few doctors do because our uh, Medicare system is actually very generous for doctors and it's a good system. Very little bureaucracy compared to systems like the US. So there's the greatest beneficiaries of Medicare have been physicians. So we shouldn't mm-hmm. forget that. Yeah. I feel like it's so taboo, but we need to go there. And I, I, I don't know what will make us go there. What I'm getting at is what is our breaking point? Because uh, baby boomers are getting to prime time, healthcare, utilization, age. You know, we keep saying that we can't keep this up in terms of healthcare delivery and, and spending. So what's next? Like, what, what do you see? What's going to happen? in Canada, in your, in your humble opinion? Well, you know, I think that we have to realize that healthcare is really important to us. Uh, we have to find a way of delivering it. And as I said before, we obsess a lot too much about the cost. Do we spend too much on healthcare? I'm often asked that question, and I always give the same glib response. I always say, I have no idea, because I don't know what we're trying to achieve. So mm. we just spend, you know, we spend the way we spend. Uh, we don't have any set public health goals in Canada. Uh, so in, unless you have goals, it's hard to say if we're getting, achieving what we're trying to do. So I think that's, we have to do some basic stuff. What kind of goals would you have us, like, would you have in mind? Yeah, so I look to, uh, many countries do this. So you look to a country like Sweden. So Sweden publicly publishes every year a list of its public health goals. So for example, I take one in Canada. In Canada, we have an abysmally high rate of uh, child mortality compared to most of the world. So I would say uh, in Canada, we want to bring our rate of child mortality from three per thousand to uh, two per thousand. Uh, that would be a public health goal for me. And then we find out a way to do that. And mm-hmm. we spend the money that's necessary to do it. So that, that's how you have uh, goals and then you work to achieve them. Uh, mm-hmm. People often get uh, uncomfortable when I say, you know, we have to treat it more like a business. And that's what a business does. A business says, here's the goals for the year. Uh, you know, often those goals are related to profit, but we don't have to, that doesn't have to be the goal in healthcare. The, care, the goal can be, you know, we're going to ensure that our child poverty rate falls by X percentage points, or that uh, the cesarean delivery rate is going to be less disparate from one end of the country to the other. So there's all mm-hmm. kinds of goals you can set. Once you have goals, it's easier, I think, to to figure out how to spend appropriately. You know where you're trying to go. Yeah, you're you have purpose. 
Yeah, I, it's it's funny because you always hear on a lot of whatever endeavors that you 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 go on that you know you need to set goals and and, and write them down or uh, discuss them, be clear on what your objectives are. And it's funny if you ask me what you know what are the goals of Canadian healthcare system, and that's not an easy question. Yeah, to make Canadians healthier or whatever, but is that really specific enough? Is that like what does that actually mean? You know. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. When I when I do talks, I often ask the audience, I say, what what is the statement of purpose of Canadian Medicare? So we spend a quarter of a trillion dollars every year, $256 billion on healthcare. What is its purpose? So I mm. often ask that to audiences, and the question, the answer is always silence. So I tell them, you're right. We don't have any. You're all right, <laughs> you know, to answer nothing. Mm-hmm. And when you put it in those terms, I think people go, wow, we spend all this money and we don't What's the purpose of it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm actually speechless. Because, yeah, what really is our goals? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, even if you think about it in, in specific niches, like, you know, when I'm in ICU, I know my, my goals are clear. When I'm in the palliative care, my goals are clear. You know, when, they, when we look at a system level, it's not clear at all. You know, we might have a bunch of issues, but we're not prioritizing them. We're just blanketly throwing money and, and, and dealing with fires. Wow. And palliative care is a really good example. You know, you have very specific goals once the patient is there. But what are, what are our goals as society to ensure that the right patients get there? In Canada, 17, but between 17 and 35% of people who should have palliative care get it. We do a terrible job of ensuring people are treated well at end of life. And, you know, I can't, it's hard to imagine something that's more important than alleviating people's pain at the end of life to not see them die a horrible death. And we just hasn't, we don't have goals. We don't have, we haven't made that a priority. You know, again, it's the Canadian classic thing. Once you're in, you know, you're in palliative care, we have fabulous palliative care. But so many people are denied access to that, that it's, it's criminal. Yeah, it's, and the thing that people may or may not realize is even when it's studied, the benefits of early palliative care, like we, there's a study out, it's almost 10 years old now, that there was stage four cancer patients that got either early palliative care or just standard care up to the discretion of their team. And the patients that got early palliative care, not only were their symptoms improved, but they actually lived longer, ironically. And so, yeah, I, I mean, you're definitely preaching to the choir in terms of palliative care resources. I mean, you know, when you when you look at trying to improve the experience for the family, for the patient, uh, making sure that, you know, they're not suffering. And, you know, even from a resource point of view, like the patients are less likely to occupy acute care beds as a result. It's just, uh, it is a bit mind boggling that this is not emphasized more. Yeah. And it's a reminder. What you're saying is a reminder. I don't, I don't think we lack money. I don't think there's any lack of money in our system. We're one of the biggest healthcare spenders in the world, but I think it's how the money is allocated that is the problem. We don't spend smartly. We don't get value for money. This is this is my. I mean, this is like my mission, Andre. It's like I see it day in day out. Us putting in money into interventions that have no benefit. Even there's a a simple. This is a very simple example, but you know, uh, I think it clarifies things. You could have, if someone comes into the ICU when they're, they're, they need to be resuscitated with IV fluids, there's 
normal saline that you've, we've all seen that costs maybe a dollar thirty, and then there's some more sophisticated fluids that cost about fifty to sixty dollars for the same amount of volume. So sixty times the price with no like if you could study it through the yin yang, there was no additional benefit for you getting that fluid, you know, and we we spent thousands on it. And it's, there's no reason for it. You could have an oral antibiotic that's just as effective as an IV antibiotic, but people will still order the IV one because it makes them feel better. Throwing away money just because, you know, for lack of understanding or just because of uh, a lack of, lack of a will to change. It's just, it's all over the place. And then instead, we could be putting it into places that matter. That's, this is, I don't know, this is what drives me nuts. You know, I see my physiotherapist position gets cut. I see my social worker position get cut. Things that actually are going to make a difference into the patient experience and in, in improving care. I'm going to have to cut these positions. It's crazy to me. Yeah, and you remind me of, I remember visiting a, a unit for uh, girls with eating disorders at a hospital, and they had cut the uh, psychological care. So they were no longer getting psychological care. So what was the result is they ended up spending many more months in hospital at great, a tremendous cost, way more money than it costs to fund a psychologist. It's a different budget, et cetera. But just a lot of irrational stuff like that happens. And it just, it actually costs more money, not less. Exactly. Uh, you know, people, 90 year olds with dementia and cancer getting a hip transplant. What, what's yeah. the point of that? Absolutely. It's, and, and stuff that has been studied and we know are unlikely to benefit and we still offer it. And, you know, I mean, when you give that example of arguably who might be the most valuable person in an eating disorder ward, <laughs> I would think it would be the psychologist. Wow. That reminds me, we, we did get a bunch of questions uh, on Twitter when we were doing the show and and one of yeah, them, I saw that there was quite a daunting list. <laughs> <laughs> You're a popular man. One question that like really stuck with me, and and I don't think there's an easy answer to this is how do we break the cycle of these four year cycles where governments are in power, and so they the budgets are reflective of that. So there's so much short short sighted, you know, budget budget interventions cuts because we got to balance the budgets despite the fact that some of these cuts are going to make things worse in the long run, is, is there a solution to this problem? Well, again, yeah, I think there is a solution. And again, we can learn from looking at other jurisdictions. I think one of the things that's, that distinguishes Canada systems is the level of political micromanagement. So there's way too much interference from that. The health minister's office reacts to what's on the front page of a newspaper. That's how our system runs. It's like, uh, I always call our health ministers uh, firefighters instead of fire prevention officers. Mm. And that's what they should be doing. They should be setting the philosophical goals, as I talked about before. These are the goals we want to achieve, and we should have professional administrators running the system. So that, that's what I see when I go to countries in Europe, when, like the Netherlands and France. They're professionally managed. They're run like a business, and the government essentially keeps their, their nose out of it, and the public doesn't want their nose in it. So I think it's really to let the managers manage Mm. One of the worst jobs in Canada is to be a healthcare administrator because you have all this responsibility and you have no power and you're constantly second-guessed by politicians. It's a, a terrible position to be in. So what do they do? They just cover their butts. They try and not make waves and we just go along, you know, try and keep quiet, not 
nobody wants to catch the attention of the Ministry of Health because it's always going to be bad news. So it's, I think it's this professionalization uh, that we have to aim for. And it's weird because we, we don't do it in any other part of our, our government. You know, the transport minister doesn't call and tell the airport what flight should be going out. Mm. But that's, that's how it works in healthcare. It's, it's absurd. So I, I think that problem is easily solvable, but it's going to take some, some political guts for people to say, listen, hands off. Uh, I'm going to let the, you know, Ontario Health, so, you know, say take Ontario Health, this new mm. system. Theoretically, you should be able to do that. That should be an independent entity. Government gives them their allocation of money. Go for it. Run it mm-hmm. the way that it should be run. That, that's how a, a system works in most countries, and that's how it should work here. Have you seen a province healthcare system that works better than others? Yeah, it's funny. When I travel around the country, I always know that's going to be the first question when I do a talk. <laughs> We're obsessed in Canada. Are we the worst, or are we just sort of in the middle? That's everybody the wants to be competitive nature of Canadians. So I think, I think the answer to it is we, we don't know because we don't measure things very well. Uh, I think anecdotally, we know that every province does some stuff really well. So we all have areas of excellence. I often describe Canadian Medicare as uh, islands of excellence in a sea of mediocrity. So mm. we have a lot of mediocrity, we have a, but we have a lot of great stuff. So New Brunswick has tremendous paramedicine. Uh, Manitoba has really good home care. Quebec has really good primary care with CLSCs. Uh, BC has a really good handle on its drug program. Mm. So there's all these provinces that do things well. And the frustrating thing for me is we don't learn from each other and copy each other. We do quite the opposite. We always try to reinvent the wheel. Mm. But to get back to your initial question, who does it best overall? Uh, Now, I'll just go with my gut feeling because, again, there's no measures. But I, I think these days, I think it varies. I think uh, Alberta used to have by far the best health system. Uh, it sort of uh, pioneered the regionalization model, and it did it really well. It allowed the regions to to run in the way we talked about, you know, you're the boss and you run it, and the government kept its hands out. And until the government started meddling again, that worked really, really well. So I think Alberta was a leader for a long time. I think now probably Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan mm-hmm. is a really good size, about a million, really good size to, to run a system. Ontario is, you know, kind of a dog's breakfast. They're trying to fix this with a reorganization, but it's really uh, the most disorganized system. And as a result, I think one of the ones with the, with the worst outcomes, unfortunately. I, I don't think there's a best and I don't think there's a worst, but there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad overall, unfortunately. No, I, I, I can appreciate your answer. I I'm originally from Alberta, and one of the things that was taking place before I left was single electronic medical health record. You know, they had this, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, but, you know, taking the bull by the horns and saying, yeah, you know, this is ridiculous. We should all be under one system, and it should all hospital charts should be able to speak to each other to a certain extent. And this was, I mean, this was in 2005 when I left. So yeah, I do. I could I could see where you're coming from, and yeah, at the time they still had the like uh, health authorities is what they would call them, like w- which pretty much had, as you described, a free reign, um, relatively speaking, to to work in the way that was most of, effective for their community. It's a really good point you bring up, though. It's you know a little bit more independence for some of these administrators to you know to try and do the right thing for their for the community and to be able to get to their needs 
Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a fair point and you, that you don't hear about every day. But yeah, certainly in Ontario, this is what we're attempting. I, I'm going to ask you a bit of a controversial one too. Is there a party that you feel like since you've been uh, doing this for 40 plus years that seems to do a better job of this than others? Well, you know, the, I think one of the biggest problems in Canadian politics is that there's very little difference between the parties. <laughs> uh, we have violent agreement on you know, essentially the status quo. And Mm. that's to me, it's always frustrating to me during election campaigns, there's very little discussion of healthcare because there's no disagreement. Everybody sort of has this, oh, Medicare is great and we don't want to talk about it. Attitude, NDP, conservative, liberal, all the same approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think a lot of it goes back to, uh, there's a famous quote attributed to Joey Smallwood, who is the premier of Newfoundland, one of the fathers of confederation, he once said that uh, I've never had a discussion about healthcare that didn't lose me votes. <laughs> and I think to this day, politicians feel like that. You start talking about healthcare and it becomes a losing proposition because you can never satisfy everyone. So the parties kind of agree to, to say nothing. So we have these little discussions around the edges occasionally, but there's never any serious talk of, of reforming healthcare regardless of the party. So short answer, no, there's not one that's better than the other. What we do know is that the, the lesser a party's chances of being elected, the more bold their promises are for health care. So that, that's the sad reality. Fair enough. Okay, I'm going to touch on a, a few uh, more questions that some of the, our fans were, were asking. So in terms of new cannabis legislations, what's your, your overall opinion on our approach? Yeah, so I've been long uh, a proponent of, I, I don't believe that, you know, drugs should be regulated the way they are now. I'm a big believer in uh, legalization of all drugs, because I believe people are going to use them and we have to make it safe for them to, to use and, and educate them, etc. So that's my, mm. my premise that I operate from. Lots of people don't like that view, but I have a very libertarian view about drugs. And I think it's uh, built from a public health perspective that that's the most rational approach. Now, when we take cannabis, I think the legalization of cannabis was long overdue. Uh, we mm. started discussing this in the 1970s with the Ladane Report. And finally, two years ago, we got around to legalization. Now, what's happened since then? I think it's been kind of a bust. It's been a bust economically, socially, uh, medically, because we've replaced this criminalization with a whole bunch of stupid regulations. There's mm. way more laws about cannabis use now than there were before it was legalized. So it's kind of a, we've undermined what we were, were trying to do. Uh, from the business perspective, uh, that's the story that gets the most attention in Canada is our uh, cannabis companies are all going bust uh, because the sales are not what they expected. We could have built an industry here that exported its knowledge around the world, but uh, there's so much uh, red tape and regulation that we've denied ourselves that right. So I, I think we've kind of messed up this good idea. We've did it, done it very, very badly, unfortunately. So the reality is what? The reality is a lot of people still buy on the black market. Uh, the government stores have product, but they have long wait lines. You know, this is the Canadian way. We wait for everything. We even wait for in line outside to buy our pot. So I, I think it's kind of been a, a, a huge disappointment, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, um, I do hear you about the, from a, like a public health perspective on legalization, because certainly, you know, putting somebody in jail or putting them in a spot where they can't have a job based on a substance that people are going to use anyway, seems 
you know, um, not right. But my concern personally is the use, especially amongst the youth. Like, I think there's some detrimental effects that maybe we're not appreciating. Like, I know we see a little bit more psychosis in, 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 in late adolescence, early adult age. I, I just kind of wish it was studied a bit more before we're like, hey, you know, let's just throw it out to the world. Uh, but, you know, I, I do hear you from the public health side for sure. You know, the youth, the youth issue, whether it's cannabis, whether it's vaping, whether it's tobacco, that's a particularly challenging one. And those things are all illegal. It's always been illegal for young people, probably always will be. And that's not the issue. That's not the way we're going to deal with that demographic. We have to, we have to teach them. Uh, we have to recognize that they're young people, so they're going to be risk-taking. They're going to be experimenting. And we have to deal with that reality instead of being moralistic about it and saying, oh, we've got to ban vaping, we've got to ban cannabis. They're going to use it. So let's make sure that when they do, they do it safely. Uh, they do it rationally as much as possible for a teenager to do anything rationally. I think we just have to be much more pragmatic about this stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, that's the big lesson I've learned about writing about public health for a long time is you really have to put your opinions aside and be very pragmatic about this stuff and realize it's going to happen. So how do we make it as safe as possible? Uh, how do we reduce harm? Harm reduction has to be the driving force of our, our public policies. Mm -hmm. And the, the worst thing for harm reduction is, is prohibition. Prohibition has always failed regardless of the substance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess it's always a question which I guess we don't know is just, you know, what is that safe level? What is, a, what is the amount or the approach that, you know, is truly reducing harm but yeah a lot of questions in terms of you know the approach how about another question that came up was regarding pharmacare i think you've you've written a bit about pharmacare in canada uh, any thoughts on that yeah so an issue we've written a lot about because it, it actually did get debated politically uh, again i think pharmacare is necessary we need to you know, we're the only developed country aside from the U.S. that doesn't include drug coverage in our, in our universal health plan. So that's something that's needed to be fixed for 50 years. So we have to do that. So we've done it to a certain extent, but we've done it in a very haphazard way. So we have 102 public drug programs in Canada. So we have mm. to make some sense of that. We need some, some more centralization, some more logic. But I think the really important thing that's lost in the pharmacare debate is we have to define what we mean by pharmacare. So we have a lot of uh, people talking about, you know, we need this single universal system. Sure, that's one way of doing it. To me, it's not necessarily that way. But the most important thing is what are we going to cover for who and why? So how are we going to get value for money uh, for our drugs? And I think the way to do it is not to uh, copy what we've done with with uh, physicians and hospitals. We've covered those 100% and it doesn't work. Uh, we have a lot of waste. We have a lot of uh, stuff that's not done because we spend too much in those areas. So I think we have to mm -hmm. be careful not to repeat the mistakes we've made earlier. So I think we have to be a little smarter to decide what we're going to cover. And that that to me is the essence of the debate. There's no question that we should cover drugs. They're really important uh, if we're going to have universal health care. But universality doesn't mean covering every product for every person all the time. Right. Ensuring that everyone has the essentials in an affordable way. And those are different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly was a 
one of the few healthcare related topics that came up during this past election. And that was, ex- <laughs> it's funny. It, that was my exact thoughts when it came up. I'm like, what is, what is that actually, what does formal care actually mean? Like, what are we actually debating here? Yeah, there was no, uh, there was no real debate. There was a bunch of platitudes that were uttered, but that wasn't debate because they, the parties never defined what they meant. Uh, you know, they said, we're going to bring in this program, but what exactly is the program going to be? And yeah. then the, the fact that the, the federal parties were debating this, neglecting the fact that ultimately it's up to the provinces, that, that was a big problem as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. So, okay, Audrey, what are your thoughts on medical assistance in dying? Yeah, so another issue that we took a long time to, to deal with. So I started covering that issue in the early 80s. Uh, then it got a lot of steam with the, in the, the early 90s with Sue Rodriguez, kind of died off for a while. Uh, and then came back. So that again, we finally brought in this legislation to give people more choice at the end of life to minimize their suffering. So I think that was a really big, important piece of legislation. Now, the problem was that the legislation was was flawed and it was inadequate, and we, we've got to fix it. So we're at that mm-hmm. point now. In fact, uh, new public consultations have just started about uh, expanding uh, the made legislation. So that's going to happen. The court has ordered it. But it's always frustrating with these issues, how slowly we go, how cautious the politicians are. Thank God we have an activist court in Canada. We, you know, are, we have much worse health care. The, the courts have forced us to do stuff that we know we should do, but politicians are too, too wimpy to do on their own. Mm-hmm. So a really important issue. Uh, I think we have to recognize that very few people are ever going to get an assisted death. That's going to be 1%, 2%, a very tiny percentage. But I think it's a really important philosophical point, a theoretical point that people have choice at end of life. I think that's what's most important about this debate is giving patients more control. And I think that we're going to see that now. We're going to see the really tough ones. Does that apply to people with dementia? Does it apply to people with mental illness? Does it apply to Mm -hmm. children? There's some really, really tough debates coming. But again, I, I stay in my bubble about being pragmatic. I think we have to give people options. And then we have to ensure at the same time that there are protections so that these things aren't abused. Yeah. So basically what I'm hearing is we can't use the slippery slope argument as a, a reason not to implement this. People deserve to have that choice in terms of uh, how they want to uh, end their life. I don't know how many times I've said in my columns that not every slope is slippery, but I think we have to remember that, that, uh, that that's kind of a banal argument. Not every slope is slippery. There is, we have to have buffers in place to ensure there aren't abuses, but that doesn't mean denying people rights to, who want them. And no one should be forced to take, uh, to have an assisted death uh, when they don't want to. No one should be choosing assisted death for lack of alternatives, like lack of palliative care lack of long-term care, that's unacceptable. But mm. no one should be denied an assisted death who wants it, who's making a rational choice. Agreed. And we can do all those three things at once. They are not uh, mutually exclusive. Exactly. In your book, Matters of Life and Death, you touch on transgender issues. Where do you see some of these issues in 2020? I think it's just an example of what we talked about at the outset. It's a uh, it's an evolution, you know, it's a new patient group, a new demographic that's standing up and being heard, and the, the health system has to adjust. Uh, this notion of treating 
a gay men was unthinkable in the 70s and 80s. You know, they're a bunch of perverts. Mm. And we hear a lot of that same. When you're around a long time, you start to hear these echoes. And we hear that now about transgender. Oh, we can't possibly do that. We can't use different pronouns. Uh, the language has always been the same. But, but things evolve. Language evolves. Medicine has to evolve. And I think this is a, these developments are good. They challenge us. They force us to think differently. Unfortunately, there are abuses. There are wrongs that happen along the way that force mm-hmm. us to deal with this. But I, I think it's, it's a very positive development that we're talking about uh, gender fluidity, that uh, the gender is a social construct. I think these are really mm-hmm. important things for physicians and future, future physicians to, to think about and to talk about and how do they treat their patients uh, regardless of their gender or how they identify. Mm-hmm. Super important topic and definitely one for a future episode. Mm-hmm. Audrey, what about the wait times we're seeing overall, whether in a merge or if you're waiting for a hip, do you see any solutions in the near future? Yeah. So again, I think wait times is a systemic issue. So it's about creating more flow in the system. It's about breaking the bottlenecks. You know, as we talked about earlier, uh, the long waits in our emergency rooms have very little to do with emergency care, right? They're all about bottlenecks. It's about inability to admit people, inability to to get people out of hospital. We have this perversity in Canada called the ALC patients, alternate level of care patients who live in hospitals. Uh, I've done stories about this. I, I met a patient who's been living in a hospital for 10 years because there's no alternative for them. Uh, this, this makes no sense. It makes no sense from a business perspective. It makes no sense from a patient care perspective. Ethically, all these things are wrong and we have to fix them. But, you know, in some provinces, one third of all hospital beds are ALC patients. They're people who have been discharged but have nowhere to go. So these are, this is how you deal with wait times is you deal with things across the spectrum. No easy solution. It can't be overnight, but we have to uh, correct the errors we've made of, of bad planning. You know, we, all, we, we hear often and over and over again, oh, well, it's the aging boomers, you know, we that's what's overwhelming our system. We've known about the boomers for 60 years. <laughs> no surprise here. It's just a bad planning, lack of foresight, and we have to fix it. Agreed. But what can we do now? Like if I'm, you know, the minister of health or I'm the lead for a health authority and I got these tons of ALC patients, what can we do? Well, I think, again, if you look at it, say, from a business perspective, what do you do in a business if you have this problem? you have a a mixture of carrots and sticks. So you start punishing hospitals that have ALC patients. Mm. Why did patients, you know, the perversity is that hospitals actually like having ALC patients because they require less nursing care. They're understaffed on nursing. They get paid the same amount of money, require less care. So it's actually a good thing for them, which is wrong. It shouldn't be a good thing. So you have to punish them financially. Uh, and that will solve the problem pretty quickly. They'll get them elsewhere. We have to incentivize people to have more uh, long-term care homes. Most of our long-term care homes are private businesses. We have to ask ourselves why people don't go into this business. That's because the rates suck. It's because there's way too much regulation. So we have to make it easier for people to provide spaces for people who need it. And then we have to deal with the other piece of the puzzle, which is home care. Uh, I think we have put far too many resources into uh, people getting home care just to get them out of hospital quicker from short-term surgery. And we haven't invested enough in the 
the chronic part of the puzzle. So again, from a business point of view, way cheaper to care for those ALC patients in their homes, costs a fraction of the cost. So take that money and use it differently. And if you don't do that, then you're going to be punished for it. So the carrot and stick approach, all this stuff is solvable. And I know it's solvable because I see, I don't see these problems in other countries around the world. Interesting. We kind of talked a bit about how to create change in healthcare and you do bring up the carrot and the stick. And I mean, money talks. One of my main incentives to do research around cost is because that's the language that, that's a change language. That's the language of administrators, of uh, politicians. So if you could show a financial benefit for any intervention, like that's when things actually start to move. And so withholding funds so that change can occur, you know, I think it can go a long way. But certainly just sticking with the status quo is is not good enough. But I would add the, the proviso that if you're going to have carrots and you're going to have sticks, people have to have accountability and they also have to have power. So you can't mm. punish a hospital for having ALC patients, but not giving them the power to, to resolve it. Mm. So I think, again, when you have uh, regionalization is supposed to be the solution to this, right? So the way a regionalization is supposed to work is that they should say, here's our overall budget. We're not spending it well by having these people living in hospitals. We should spend it on home care or we should spend it on long-term care facilities. So you have to have the power to move that money around. And that, that's how the, the issue will get resolved ultimately if we give people accountability and power to fix things. I love it. You know, tr- trusting in the people that you've in, you know, invested into trying to make the healthcare system better. We pay healthcare administrators a lot of money. Let them administer. Mm. No, that's that's a great point, Andre. One thing I like to do is always end on a positive note and and allow our guests to talk about a story or a time where they felt their job has had a big impact on in general. And you did give this story earlier about um, you know the AIDS patient in in, in Toronto, but. Is there any other time where you felt that you covering healthcare and and being as engaged as you have been that you've really made a difference? I think there's all those little stories like we talked about, you know, the one patient who who got better care because of your story, uh, little policy changes, those are always moving. But to me, there there are two big things in my my career that stand out. Uh, I wrote for a long time about the tainted blood tragedy. So this came out of my coverage Mm. of AIDS. I started covering, uh, you know, there were four groups who were infected with AIDS. And one of them was always forgotten, this little group of hemophiliacs and transfusion patients. So we started focusing on them. And this became became a huge story. It became uh, uh, an expose of one of the worst, probably the worst public health scandal in Canadian history. About 30,000 people were infected with HIV and hepatitis. Uh, because of mismanagement of the blood system, because of lying to people, because et cetera. I, I have a whole book-length version of this uh, rant. But uh, that issue, the, the tainted blood issue, I think is one of my proudest moments because it really did uh, bring relief to a lot of people. There was more than $5 billion in compensation paid out ultimately. Uh, the, our drug uh, regulation system changed profoundly as a result of that. And I, I'm not taking credit for that solely, but we did get the ball rolling. So I think that's mm-hmm. a 
really important story in my my legacy, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then another one very similar, but on a smaller scale, but a very touching one was a work that I did with my colleague Ingrid Peretz on the uh, thalidomide survivors. Mm. So it's a group of uh, people who were affected by thalidomide in the 1950s, 60s, uh, left with you know, uh, missing limbs, et cetera. And a lot of those folks lived a long time suffering in poverty. And we came back to that a few years ago and wrote about these forgotten survivors. And again, the result was uh, quite a large compensation package, people getting their lives back, uh, people who are forgotten. You know, we got to tell their story. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of touching, touching stories as a journalist uh, to hear from that and when you actually change people's lives. So those are Two of the biggies for me, uh, but all the little ones day to day, you know, they they keep you going. Yeah, no, I I got to tell you, Andre, is it truly is a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you, and I could truly echo the amazing, inspiring work that you've done over the years that has impacted Canadians and and people worldwide, and given you know people a voice, increasing awareness on on many healthcare related issues and. I got to tell you, I learned a ton today. You know, I, I got no political, no policy uh, game. I'm, I'm not educated from that front. But the things we talked about today were super eye-opening, especially like the silo stuff and the, the regionalization aspect of, of things, like the way you framed it. And it's just, I don't know, it's, there's a lot to digest and a lot to think about. But, you know, I, I'm hoping my listeners are feeling similar to me and feeling pretty inspired. and. I, I'm truly grateful that you, you took some time to, to do this, and uh, I, I hope to have you on again. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. And, you know, I always remind people, you know, I, my job is to sort of summarize and to translate all this. I, I meet all these brilliant people, and my job is to sort of steal their ideas and make them pithy and accessible to the public. So I can't forget that I, I know nothing. I learn all this stuff from other people, and I I think my only skill is really being able to boil stuff down and simplify it and hopefully communicate it in a way that, that people can understand and, and act on. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it's working. Awesome, Andre. Thank you so much. There's going to be links to all your books, your Twitter handle, everything in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for doing this. Great. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to episode 14 with Andre Picard. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you guys want to follow him on Twitter, it's Picard on Health. If you want to follow or support the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at Quadcast, you can send comments to Quadcast99 at gmail.com. And uh, please let us know how we're doing. We, we're looking to always improve on the show. Leave five-star rating on iTunes if you're up for it. Leave a review. Thanks again, guys. We'll talk soon.